Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 26. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this once again early in the morning on June 18th, 2021 in Austin, Texas. This episode is Calamity at Pensacola. It is 1559, 16 years after our last latest date on the timeline, which was the summer of 1543, when the tattered remnants of the Soto expedition sailed in pinnaces down the Mississippi River, past the future site of New Orleans, and across the Gulf of Mexico. Since then, the Spanish had all but thrown in the towel on North America after the failures of the Soto and Coronado Entradas between 1539 and 1543, which followed hot on the heels of the even uglier Ayon and Narvaez expeditions. There had been four major expeditions, no big conquests or discoveries, hundreds of dead Spanish, thousands of dead Indians, and a huge pile of pesos down the drain. Of those four-storied captain generals, only Coronado made it out alive, and he just barely. La Florida, which in Spanish terminology meant essentially everything in North America that wasn't Mexico, was the unrewarding tomb of the conquistadors. In the interest of completeness, or maybe just because I'm obsessive, I shall mention briefly two other probes into North America before we get to the calamity at Pensacola. In 1542, as the Soto and Coronado and were breathing their last, Juan Rodriguez Cabrillo led two ships up the Pacific coast. Cabrillo discovered San Diego and the Channel Islands for the Spanish and may have gotten as far north as Point Arena, California. He seems to have missed San Francisco, much as Verrazano missed the Chesapeake. The records of the Cabrillo trip are scant, so we haven't learned much from it. And anyway, Cabrillo himself rather severely broke his leg going ashore and soon died of the resulting infection. Cabrillo was at best the Verrazano of the West Coast, but we know much less about his trip, so I couldn't scrape together enough for its own episode. Californians have nevertheless named a bunch of stuff after him, including several public schools, a bridge, a highway... And September 28, which is Cabrillo Day, the date in 1542 when Cabrillo first saw San Diego Harbor, if one ignores the change in calendars. In reading about Cabrillo, I did stumble across the supposed origin of the name California. So here's the account from Harry Kelsey's short book, Discovering Cabrillo. By July 2nd, 1542, the ships were within sight of California. He means Baja, California. As the summary account of the expedition puts it, on Monday, the 3rd of July, they anchored off the Punta de California. The name was applied a year earlier by Fray Antonio de Meno, referring to the discoveries of the Francisco de Ulua expedition. Later that year, Domingo del Castillo put the name on his map of the California Peninsula. Very likely, Ulua's men used the word California as a joke. The popular Spanish novelist Garci Ordonas de Meldavo had popularized the name in his story of the adventures of a certain knight named Esplendian. California 
in Maltavo's account, was a place inhabited solely by women and ruled by a gorgeous queen who allowed men on the island once each year or so for a ceremony of singular character. The island was at, quote, the right hand of the Indies, and the ceremony was one aimed at continuing the race in the usual way. The funny part of the story was that this barren and hostile coast and its inhabitants bore no resemblance to the beautiful women in the earthly paradise described by Montavo. Around 400 years later and roughly 800 miles to the north, the name California would become a lot more apt. Some would say that there was a time there in the middle of the 20th century when California might have seemed like paradise on Earth. Anyway, we have now learned about the origins of the names of California, Texas, and Florida. Our three most populous states were effectively named by Spanish explorers or their cartographers all before 1600. The second effort would be less useful, if more gruesome. The mission of Brother Luis Cancer. A little background is in order. As devoted and attentive listeners know, the Spanish clergy and even the court were increasingly opposed to outright conquest of the Indians. Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, arguing for a more collaborative approach, had been circulating in Spain since the early 1540s, and Dominican friar Bartolomé de las Casas, the now famous protector of the Indians, had secured passage of the, quote, new laws on November 20th, 1542. The new laws of the Indies for the good treatment and preservation of the Indians, intended to prevent the exploitation and mistreatment of the indigenous peoples of the Americas by the Spanish, by strictly limiting their power and dominion, over groups of natives. The Spanish colonists in the New World resisted the new laws and killed various of the functionaries dispatched to enforce them. But in the end, they did some good, emancipating thousands of Indian slaves and, to some degree, changing the political debate around the treatment of the Indians. Luis Cancer was a Dominican friar and follower of Las Casas, Cribbing liberally from the Wikipedia entry, otherwise I'd have to buy an obscure and expensive book, Brother Cancer had had great success in preaching to the historically bellicose Indians in Guatemala. Cancer's efforts were supposedly so successful that this previously violent territory was renamed the, quote, province of true peace. Cancer believed that aggression and violence were counterproductive to the spread of the gospel, and that the native peoples needed to be treated with dignity. Cancer was something of a hero, in ecclesiastical circles especially. Well, success leads to hubris. Cancer proposed that he next work his evangelical magic in Florida. In retrospect, this was foolhardy, since we all know about Florida man. Even at the time, it raised eyebrows insofar as Ponce de Leon, Narvaez, and Soto had all collided with hostile and military effective Indians who used all kinds of devious trickery to kill Spaniards. Remember the trap set for poor old Juan Ortiz? Anyway, recognizing this, in his decree of 1547 authorizing Cancer's mission to Florida, Charles V stipulated that Cancer's missionaries land on northern Florida's east coast rather than the Gulf, which had proved so dangerous in the past. 
At this point, I'll just throw in the towel myself and quote the Wikipedia entry. Cancer recruited fellow Dominicans Gregorio de Bateta, Diego de Tolosa, Juan Garcia, and a certain brother Fuentes. Leaving Veracruz, they reached Havana in 1549. There they took on a converted Florida Indian, Magdalena, a, quote, highly recommended interpreter. The expedition then left for Florida on a caravel, captained by Juan de Arena. Despite the warnings to avoid the Gulf Coast, Arena took them to an area south of Tampa Bay, only miles from where the previous expeditions had landed. Seriously? Tampa Bay again? This is roughly the fourth time that a Spanish expedition had landed there, and at most only two of them intended to do. If there is one lesson that 16th century Spaniards ought to have learned, it was never land at Tampa Bay. Okay, back to Wikipedia. There, they encountered a group of apparently peaceful and receptive Indians who told them about the many populous villages of the Tocobaga chiefdom around Tampa Bay. Perceiving the possibility of goodwill, the expedition split, with Magdalena, Diego de Tolosa, Brother Fuentes, and an unknown sailor joining the Indians on the half-day's land route, and Cancer returning to the caravel to meet them at the bay. The caravel reached Tampa Bay on June 23, 1549, but only Magdalena and a group of Indians greeted them. Magdalena now much changed and wearing Indian attire, Rutro, told Cancer that she had convinced the local chief that the friars were peaceful and that the other Spaniards were now his guests. Cancer and the others returned to the caravel that evening, and on board they found Juan Munoz, a sailor who'd been enslaved by the Indians years before, but had now escaped. Munoz indicated that the Tocobaga had killed the two friars and enslaved the sailor. Bateta and Garcia wanted to flee immediately and sail for the east coast of Florida, they being nobody's fool. But Cancer refused to leave a land hallowed by the lifeblood of his compatriots. The next day, the three men rode to shore where they saw a group of hostile Indians, and Cancer exited the boat. He waded to shore and prayed for a while. Upon rising, he was brought to the group and beaten to death with clubs. That is a tough way to go. Just as this was happening, another couple of friars, Franciscans who had stayed behind to convert Indians when Coronado's expedition headed back to Mexico in 1542, walked into Mexico, having been as far north as Quivera in Kansas. That is another strange story of survival in vast early America, and it's further evidence, as if we needed any, that 16th century friars were some of the toughest men of faith who ever walked the earth. After the murder of Friar Cancer and his compatriots, Spain left North America alone for nine more years. The risk-reward of further exploration seemed dubious, but political memories were short then as now. During the 1550s, the church fathers continued to exert pressure for the settlement of Florida and conversion of the Indians. And in 1555, the powerful bishop of Cuba declared his support for its conquest. By late 1557, the political winds had again shifted in favor of the settlement of Florida, 
And on December 29th of that year, King Philip II directed his imperial bureaucracy that Florida, quote, shall be settled and placed under orderly government, both to the end that the natives thereof, who are without the light of faith, may be illuminated and taught, and that the Spaniards may be benefited and may become established. There in Philip's order are the two everlasting Spanish motives, the reach for the divine and the lure of earthly things. Both were genuine. The powerful church, for which Philip was to become the greatest champion, wanted to save souls. By this time, it was concerned not merely with saving heathens, but with containing the spreading apostasy of Protestantism. The English, the Scots, and most immediately the French were resisting Spain's hegemony in the Atlantic, and Spanish intelligence was worried that the French, and perhaps French Protestants, would establish a base there that could be used by privateers to attack Spanish treasure ships moving up the east coast of the United States to catch the westerlies that would take them back to Spain. The French would, in fact, attempt to do this just a few years later. So bureaucratic motives are always complicated, even in a divine right monarchy. The Spanish had concluded that they needed two settlement bases, one at the long-admired harbor that we now call Pensacola, and the other at Santa Elena, now Paris Island, which is just across the bay from the more famous Hilton Head on South Carolina's Atlantic coast. Philip ordered Luis de Velasco, who had succeeded Antonio de Mendoza to become the second viceroy of Mexico, to give orders that the province of La Florida and the Punta de Santa Elena be settled. According to Charles Arnade, who in 1959 published the paper on which I am most relying, Philip ordered the viceroy to name a governor for Florida who shall seem suitable to you, one fearful of God, our Lord, and zealous in our service. Philip further ordered that the expedition include an appropriate complement of priests, both for the spiritual sustenance of the Spanish and the conversion of the Indians. In late 1558, Viceroy Velasco appointed Tristan de Luna y Ariano governor of both the people sent to colonize Pensacola and, well, Hilton Head, and the territory in general. Tristan de Luna would launch his expedition promptly the next year, 1559. We shall come back to Tristan de Luna in a moment after touching on events in 1559 that would be far more important to the history of the Americas than Luna's expedition. On January 15, 1559, Elizabeth I would be crowned Queen of England at age 26. She would reign until 1603 and would, as human resources people say today, considerably exceed expectations. Elizabeth would become a geopolitical strategist of the First Order and a constant thorn in the side of both the Catholic Church and Spain's King Philip II until his death almost 40 years later. Among the great queens, Elizabeth I would rival and perhaps exceed Isabella of Castile in her impact on the history of the Americans. Indeed, that argument would be great over libations in a bar, if only there were people to have it with. Perhaps a topic for the first history of the Americans meetup, if we ever do one. On February 27, 1559, Elizabeth would make Protestantism the state religion and establish the Church of England. 
She had picked her side against the most powerful empire in Europe. Finally, on May 2nd, 1559, the insurgent theologian John Knox would return to his native Scotland and lead the Protestant Reformation there. Along with the Huguenots in France, there was Protestant thunder in Europe's north. And very soon, the long-standing but fundamentally weak geopolitical resistance to Spanish imperial hegemony would cohere around confessional resistance. So back to Tristan de Luna. Charles Arnade makes the point that Luna's appointment was fundamentally different from early conquistadors in North America. Aon, Narvaez, Soto, and Coronado had all been entrepreneurs in the tradition of Columbus. Their entradas had been at their initiative, even if abetted by leading figures in the Spanish New World. Luna was appointed to carry out an expedition at the behest of the crown. Sure, Luna put up a lot of the funds and no doubt hoped he would profit from the office. But unlike his predecessors, Luna did not actually cook up the idea for his invasion. Luna was an accomplished conquistador, a veteran of the Coronado Entrada, well-liked and trusted particularly by Viceroy Velasco, and by all obvious measures, a good choice to lead the expedition. In the end, the failure of his Entrada, I telegraphed that with the word calamity in the title of the episode, was not a function of this bureaucratic difference. However, it did have an impact on the purpose of the mission, which was explicitly colonization. And it was the first big move by the Spanish crown to deter or even interdict the encroachment of other European powers into today's United States. Attentive listeners might protest that Soto had been directed to build three, quote, stone fortresses, including on the Atlantic coast. Very true. The crown had, in the granting of Soto's patent, taken geopolitical considerations into account. But Soto was absolutely his own man, commanding his own mission for his own aggrandizement, and without obvious reluctance, blew off that mandate as soon as he landed in Florida. Here's another way to think about it. By 1559, 66 years after Nina had blown into Lisbon with the momentous news of Columbus's discovery, there were very few people alive who would remember the time before his discovery. European and especially Spanish entanglement in the Western Hemisphere was becoming normalized. The riches from Mexico and Peru had expanded Spanish power beyond all imagination. And the New World, and especially North America, was on the verge of becoming an important part of the geopolitical chessboard for every major Atlantic power. Spain was on guard. Sadly for all involved, Luna's expedition would not improve Spain's geopolitical position because of, as advertised, calamity. A hurricane would destroy most of the expedition's ships in Pensacola Harbor, leaving 1,500 people without supplies on the same coast where the Narvaez expedition had been eating horses and building rafts 31 years before. The Luna expedition is interesting to scholars, however, because the planning for the expedition was well documented. So we have learned a lot about Spanish colonization as opposed to conquest on account of it. Even better, the surviving documents have been reinforced by the recent discovery of two of Luna's sunken ships, the first in 1992 and the second in 2006. These are known as the Emmanuel Point ships, 
and they have been productive sites for marine archaeologists. Having duly set expectations, how about we jump into the Luna expedition and the preparations therefor, and then finish with some of that marine archaeology, just a taste of it. After his appointment in late 1558, Luna and Viceroy Velasco put together their expedition. Charles Arnaid says that seven sturdy friars were chosen, and the military captains for both cavalry and infantry. Arnaid says that in selecting these men, not so much attention was given to their military qualifications as to their ability to gather men and finance their units. Recruitment was not so easy. Archaeologist Della Scott Ireton is a little more tongue-in-cheek in her account. As expected, not all of the potential colonists were the cream of new Spanish society. For example, two soldiers who accompanied Luna to Pensacola were wanted for murder in Mexico. Velasco decided to leave them with Luna instead of having them extradited as they were serving him well. Velasco's agents had to search the Mexican countryside to procure the 500 or so soldiers for the expedition, half of them cavalry and half-foot soldiers, including arquebusmen, shield-bearers, and crossbowmen. The quality of these men, particularly the infantry, is suspect. Some may have been homeless. Homeless conquistadors? Not cool. The correct term, at least according to the learned people who write about the unhoused here in Austin, would be conquistadors experiencing homelessness. I'm going to go out on a limb and assert that nobody has ever before said those words in that order. There were also a thousand civilians of one sort or another. Arnaid, writing in 1959, put it delicately. Farmers, artisans, Indians, Negroes, honest married women, many with children, and others of dubious reputation rounded out the expedition. I believe that's clear enough, don't you? In the end, the fleet consisted of 11 to 13 ships of red accounts that confidently said either number. With 1,500 people in total, 240 horses, cattle for breeding, and supplies of corn, biscuit, bacon, dried beef, cheese, oil, vinegar, and wine. The ships carried materials to build an entire Spanish town at Pensacola, including a governor's residence, storehouses, jail, and more than a hundred houses. This was thought to be an ideal port because it was a manageable voyage to both Havana and Mexico and considered by Luna, at least, to be, quote, safe from bad storms. I shall pause here and marvel at the stupidity in this. We have already seen bad storms wreak havoc on expeditions in the region. Remember the hurricane in the fall of 1527 that cut the Narvaez expedition down to size before it even left Cuba? or the storm that sank the ship that Cabeza de Vaca was supposedly to take back to Spain in the harbor at Veracruz, causing him to arrive too late to win the royal license for North America. The word hurricane, from which we get hurricane, comes from the language of the Taino Indians on Cuba and Hispaniola. Almost 70 years after Columbus, you'd think an experienced New World conquistador would know that there's no such thing, as a port that is safe from bad storms in the Gulf. Which, you know, raises the next question to which I have no answer. 
why not wait until the end of the hurricane season? Anyway, the fleet left Veracruz, then called San Juan de Ulua. That was the site of our Pirate's Tale sidebar episode, which is still some years in the future. On June 11th, 1559, and got to Pensacola after having been blown around a bit on August 14th. They got to work building their base and preparing to march much of their number northeast to South Carolina. They were not, however, in a great hurry to unload the ships. On September 19th, just when you would most expect it, a hurricane blew in and tore up the ships anchored in Pensacola's harbor. All but three of them were consigned to Davy Jones' locker, and one of the ships was supposedly lifted by the wind and carried an arquebus shot's distance from the shores. 200 miles an hour, that wind blew. A tidal wave, 12 feet high, went right across the key. Whole towns were wiped out. For my money, the creepy hurricane scene in Key Largo is the best part of that awesome movie. From Charles Arnade's paper, quote, DeLuna reported to the Viceroy that all ships which were in this port went aground, save only one caravel and two barks. There was a great loss of seamen and passengers, both of their lives as well as their property. The ships had not yet been unloaded, and much of the reserved food, already scarce, went down with them. DeLuna sent an urgent message to Velasco, requesting aid. The governor made it clear that his situation was so desperate that he might be forced to abandon the bay and move with his men into the interior in search of provisions. So began roughly 18 months of futility, misery, and starvation. I could drag you all through all the gruesome details, but none of what we know about the slow-motion collapse of it. Luna's expedition is more interesting or consequential or as well described as any of the previous four such disasters. In a nutshell, Luna sent out scouting expeditions to find Indian settlements with big storehouses of food. But not surprisingly, 18 years after Soto and his army and its herd of disease-ridden pigs had barreled through the region, there were not very many big Indian settlements, and certainly none with stockpiles that could support more than a thousand freeloaders. Nevertheless, in February 1560, the increasingly desperate Luna marched most of his people into Alabama's interior, reaching today's Monroe County, about 75 miles north of the Gulf. There the aspiring settlers made enemies of any Indians who did not consider themselves enemies already, and after further misery, returned to Pensacola by way of Mobile in the summer of 1560. A supply ship or two arrived with not nearly enough food, along with new orders to march on Hilton Head. But at this point, Luna had lost control of his captains, who conspired with the clergy to insubordination, if not outright mutiny. By the winter of 1561, Luna had isolated himself from his men, and in April 1561, he had left for New Spain to account for his failure to accomplish anything. He would disappear from history. A successor in command, the moderate Angel de Villafaña, took over and within a few months took most of the survivors to Cuba. The historical end of the Pensacola settlement was no later than July 1561. 
In something of a coda, a year later in June 1562, Villafane would lead three ships to South Carolina, only to have, you guessed it, a hurricane wreck them. In this respect, the otherwise thoughtful Spanish seemed to have the flattest of learning curves. For the life of me, I do not understand why so many Spanish expeditions in and around the Gulf sail during hurricane season. On December 17, 2015, less than six years ago, the Pensacola News Journal notified the news-reading world that, quote, the search is over. The long-standing mystery is solved. The location of the oldest established European multi-year settlement in the United States is indeed in the heart of Pensacola. Discoveries by local historian Tom Garner in October and research afterward by University of West Florida archaeologists confirm where Don Tristan de Luna established his Spanish colony in August 1559, six years before the St. Augustine settlement and nearly 48 years before the English settlement in Jamestown, Virginia. The historical site is an urban downtown neighborhood within view of the two shipwrecks linked to the Luna Expedition in Pensacola Bay. UWF declined to reveal the exact location to protect the neighborhood and integrity of the site, close quote. The first clue was the broken rim of a 16th century ceramic olive jar that surfaced after an old house was bulldozed to make way, presumably, for a new house. The owners gave archaeologists a few days to search for other artifacts, and they quickly turned up lots of shards, utensils, Venetian beads for trading with the Indians, and so forth. By this means, we know the site of the first European settlement on American soil to last longer than a few weeks. This is apparently a point of pride for Pensacola, which has a big old statue of and memorial for the otherwise disgraced Tristan de Luna right on the water near downtown. Or maybe it ain't so. On April 21st, 2021, less than two months before I'm writing this, an archaeologist named Caleb Curran wrote an interesting piece that claimed that the purported site of the Luna colony had actually been an Indian village and the European artifacts there had been brought there by Indians. Infuriating as this may be to the city fathers of Pensacola, I find it fascinating that 460 years after Luna left in disgrace, we are still arguing over where he left from. This is History in Action, folks. I'll put links in the show notes on the website. The identification, or not, of the site of the Luna settlement actually followed the discovery of two of Luna's wrecked ships in Pensacola Bay. Nearly as I can tell, the leading scholar is a fellow named Roger Smith, and I've relied primarily on one of his papers written between the discovery of the first ship and the second ship. The Emanuel Point ship, a 16th century vessel of Spanish colonization. The first Emanuel Point ship was found in only 12 feet of water, but it had been buried under a thick layer of oyster, clam, and mussel shells over the more than four intervening centuries. So I'll wrap this episode up by liberally quoting from Smith's paper, since it is replete with interesting factoids. Although only 40% of the shipwreck site had been investigated to date, over 5,000 artifacts and field specimens have been recovered from the hull. These items represent the broad spectrum of cultural materials that not only accompanied the ship on its last voyage, 
but those that had accumulated in the bilge from the time the vessel was built. For example, amongst carpenter's scraps associated with the pump box was found a small silhouette of a ship carved from fur. The architectural hallmarks of the mid-16th century galleon, a heavy bulkhead, prominent fore and stern castles, and a stern gallery have been faithfully reproduced in miniature. Also well-preserved in the bilge were found remnants of tools, fragments of clothing, portions of a previous cargo of mercury that had escaped its containers, and a copper coin minted in Spain between 1471 and 1474 that may have come aboard with the recycled ballast of earlier ships. Evidence of inevitable stowaways had also accumulated in the bilge. A population of black rats, ratus ratus in the academic paper, that once inhabited the hold is well represented. Examples of all but the tiniest portions of the rodent's osteology, that would be bones, were recovered. They reveal a life stressed by cannibalism, tooth decay, and rickets caused by serious vitamin deficiencies. In addition, evidence of the European house mouse, Moose domesticus, also was found, although the two populations of rodents did not occupy the same niche aboard the ship. The degree of organic preservation present in the ship's bilge sediments is best reflected by deposits of insect remains, notably the hide beetle, that may have accompanied a previous cargo of New World cowhides, and the now ubiquitous American cockroach, which is thought to have originated in Africa. Similarly, botanical remains survived in the wreck, most notably seeds and nuts of both American and European varieties. These include persimmon, papaya, olive, plum prune, cherry, almond, hazelnut, hickory, and oak. Other evidence for shipboard provisions includes large numbers of butchered bones representing domestic pig, cow, goat, sheep, and chicken. The predominance of beef ribs found in association with broken containers in the bow is representative of a common fare rather than one made up of choicer cuts of meat. Wooden casks and earthenware jars held most of the comestible stores. Many of the porous jars have been coated on the interior with resin to prevent seepage of liquid contents. Lead and tin glazed tableware found in greater frequency at the bow of the ship consists mainly of monochrome varieties revealing a common rather than high-class cuisine. An intact example of polychrome ware, however, was recovered from beneath the crown of the ship's anchor, where it had miraculously survived. Other remarkable ceramics include fragments of molded and painted red Aztec pottery, some with human features. These rare forms have few parallels in the archaeological record, both from land and underwater. Wrecked in the shallow waters of an enclosed bay near shore, the ship was undoubtedly salvaged after the storm. Increasingly desperate settlers probably recovered accessible cargo, equipment, and ship's components. More valuable were the ship's complement of artillery and small arms, which are absent from the site. 
Clues to weaponry turned up in the stern with the discovery of ammunition stones shot for heavy pedreros, cast iron shot for banded bombardettas, and composite lead and iron shot for smaller versos. And so it goes. There's a lot of scholarship still to be done. Colleen Lynn Reese Lawrence wrote an entire 163-page doctoral dissertation with the title An Analysis of Plant Remains from the Emanuel Point Shipwrecks and the bibliography of other scholarships from the site is long. This is a great place to stop. Thank you again for listening. Next time we will head back to the Atlantic coast and the French settlements in exactly the place that the Spanish feared. Paris Island, South Carolina, or somewhere in there. The story of Fort Caroline, or more properly, Caroline, would be inspiring and ugly all at once. If you like what you hear, please tell at least one friend in real life and consider following us on the History of the Americans podcast Facebook page, subscribing to your favorite podcast app, writing a review on Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts.